0: Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my intention to help you with your urological function and how to live better with age. Today's interview podcast episode is special to me because it is a spouse of a patient that I had. Her name is Fen Yi. And we discussed several things. I always want to highlight the partner, the spouse of the one helping their prostate cancer husband or partner. You could get lost in that area. And I wanted Fenyi to tell us, you know, what was your role like? How did you help? How did you sustain your own help? What was the process like? This is special in many ways. And one is because her husband, Jan, he did pass away. And you've heard me before. I'm unapologetically optimistic. I deal with prostate cancer Every day of my life, and almost everyone who comes to my office with prostate cancer actually lives better after that diagnosis. But most clinicians and i 'm no exception, we think of the ones we lose, and so then Jan is in my mind often in terms of trying to unravel why did this happened to him, what was the deal and we 're going to talk about this in more detail at some other episode, why his issue was so advanced. He had what's called neuroendocrine prostate cancer. We'll talk about that later. In this particular episode, I'm excited because Fenyi talks about how can the support of the caretaker take better care of themselves. Enjoy this episode with a prostate cancer partner, Fenyi. you so much for joining me on the podcast. You know, this is different. Many of the other episodes have been a lot to do with prostate cancer. There's quite a few of them in terms of what to do and so forth. We even have interviews with other physicians, but I've always felt that it is important to get the partner, the wife, the spouse of the person who's had prostate cancer involved and help them with the process. I've, I've felt compelled to that. We do have an episode for Mother's Day that we recorded on, you know, so an ode to the wife who is working with their and helping their uh, spouse, their husband with prostate cancer. So I thought of no one better than you (laughs) to have this, I think, very unique episode as you, as you went through uh, uh, with, with Jan, your, your husband, who, who passed away about a year ago, roughly, right? A little bit more than a year ago.
1: A year and a half ago. He passed uh, January 2021. So we're, we're almost, yeah, a year and a half.
0: About a year and a half ago. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. I like to start with, because I think, and, and we'll, we'll talk about Jan. I, we, you and I have spoken about this at length, where um, I think about him almost every day. And, and you know, while my audience, I am an unapologetically optimistic Right, and I think that for most men that I've ever seen, they do better after prostate cancer. Right, so they get diagnosed, and now like they have the you know oh crap moment, and they're saying, all right, I'm really going to take care of my health, and they actually do better overall, and not only from prostate cancer but overall. But sometimes it doesn't work out that way. So Jan is one of three people within my over twenty year career that I know that did not survive from the prostate cancer diagnosis. So I think about him all the time. But I think that we agreed last time we spoke that I probably saw Jan shortly after he was diagnosed so that I can help him with integrative and natural approaches. How long ago was that? And tell me when he was first diagnosed, your role at that point. And how your role changed within time, so we're going to kind of break this down and unpack it, so that first diagnosis, maybe seven, eight years ago, I think, take us back and tell us you know what happened and what you were thinking
1: so Jan's considered one of in, in the in the rhythm of prostate cancer, a lot of people still think of prostate cancer as an old man's disease, yeah, um, to provide you a little context, Jan was right. diagnosed december two thousand thirteen. Just before Christmas, actually, we got his firm diagnosis, the day we were supposed to fly out for Christmas. Um, But he he was 45 years old. So with the notion, you know, it really sort of debunks the notion that it's an old person's disease. And we had, you know, the process that led him to actually even be diagnosed um, was that he had urinary symptoms. So he wasn't even being screened for the disease yet. And that's one of these challenges where for a lot of folks, you know, they don't start thinking about PSAs or doctors don't recommend PSAs necessarily until, you know, for say 50 years old, unless there's, you know, significant family history, which actually in his case, there was family history. Somehow he had overlooked it as his GP. Um, and so we were diagnosed December, 2013 And we were diagnosed at stage four. Um, That's also something that's often misunderstood, right? When you get prostate cancer when you're younger, because usually you're not screened yet, you have a higher likelihood that you're diagnosed at a later stage.
0: That's right. Do you remember his PSA at the time? It was low. It was
1: double digit, but low, I think 25 or something like that. And compared to the mass, the tumor mass at that point, it was... We were told, oh, but you don't have a very high PSA, actually, relative to how big your tumors are. Well, what we've learned since is that when you have an aggressive form of prostate cancer, which unfortunately was what Jan had, um, your PSA actually doesn't spike as much. Because we have been told, oh, you know, usually people with, a, with this much tumor mass in their body, um, they're seeing PSAs in the hundreds.
0: In the hundreds, hundreds, thousands, yeah,
1: hundreds and thousands, right? And they're like, "Oh, you know, you have a really low PSA." And well, you know, we thought that meant we were lucky. <laughs> we didn't realize that meant we had drawn a short straw because there's just so much uh, that's misunderstood about prostate cancer out there.
0: So you went in. He had these urinary problems, then PSA, then he was diagnosed. What? And, and I and I asked this question because I tell all my patients or my new patients. You know, do you have a partner? If so, bring that partner with you. And the reason for that is because uh, maybe it's a gender thing. So men are rough and tough, or at least we think we are. But when we have this diagnosis, our, our brains just shut down. And I've seen that many times when in cases where I've had to diagnose uh, some people. And it's almost like this Charlie Brown kind of noise in our head after that yeah you have prostate cancer and then it's like so the partner in my opinion is the one that's really honed in yes emotional but seems to have their emotions better controlled and they're able to ask good questions and things like that so that diagnosis what was your thinking and what were you doing at that point back in 2013 when when you heard the diagnosis
1: so it's funny you, you talk about the Charlie Brown moment because I do remember the moment when we were delivered an initial diagnosis and then we got the confirmed diagnosis. But I remember what I remember is that initial diagnosis when we had had some image and some imaging done uh, before any biopsies and we were getting the results of the imaging and you know I looked over and I could tell that he just wasn't absorbing anything right right and 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 you know who is your
0: husband you know him well and you can see it that he's like not there
1: he's not there he's not there and we talked about it subsequently he was like yeah i was just in shock right he was like i I don't think i heard anything after those words and and you talk about you know bringing a partner along i would say even for people who don't have partners you know to bring a good friend whom you trust male or female right along someone whom you trust because the reality is that there's so much that gets thrown at you in any doctor's visit once you're on the cancer path and it's not specific to cancer alone i imagine i imagine that any major diagnosis right um you know there's only so much we're lay people there's only so much information you can absorb at any given time because sometimes terms are used that you don't recognize and all of that um, but I I was there with him. I did not typically at that point go to doctor's visits with him because he was otherwise a healthy person. Um, but he had gone to get this imaging done after, you know, multiple urologist visits where they couldn't figure out what was going on. And finally they were like, unlikely because you're so young, but let's just get some, you know, get the biopsy done. And he was like, well, before you start poking around, let's why don't we do some imaging? So he had, you know, he advocated for himself to get imaging done.
0: When was your first visit? You were not there when he was in first diagnosis. Is that correct?
1: No, I was there. I was there the first diagnosis because he went to get imaging done and we were, and I think he had the inkling that something was wrong because they told him to come back at 6 p.m. for, to get the results. And so he was like, you know, will you come with me? And so I said, "Okay, fine," because it was such a unique request for him to make.
0: Right, Uh, it showed a sign of of uh, like vulnerability again. Of course, men are vulnerable all the time, but we don't show it. So he was, you know, showing that yeah, uh, showing his vulnerability to you, his partner. And were did you sense what was your role, or, or you felt your role was at that point? So what was the supportive role? What did you do? Was it words? Did you say everything? everything's going to be okay? What was, what was that about?
1: Um, I, when he asked, I said, okay, fine. Honestly, I think I probably thought that this was excessive and unnecessary. <laughs> <Right>. Honestly, because, <laughs> yeah, because right. you know, the C word hadn't entered our lives at that yeah. point. Yeah. And we, we were both, he was in his 40s, I was in my 30s. We were healthy. Right. We had no comorbidities you know, our doctor's visits were limited to annual checkups at best.
0: right?
1: And so the idea that you might need me to come to a doctor's visit with you, I was like, oh, that's, you know, kind of (laughs) paranoid if you would. Um, But but then I was like, all right, fine. You know, it's end of day. I can do this. Let's go. And so we went and Mm. we ended up waiting because the doctor was obviously, as always, not available on time. (laughs) And we ended up getting the diagnosis at like, 9 p.m at night Mm, okay and when they kept us till 9 p.m then i was like at first i was angry because i was just like that's really disrespectful you expect us to sit around for three hours and then at, at some point i was like wait something's wrong right if they want you to sit around that long and not just come back the next day what's going on um but then you know we went we finally met with the imaging doctor and he walked us through the images and he was like, we need a biopsy to confirm, but based on everything I've seen in my vast experience, imaging prostates and because he did, imi- you know, imaging and image guided therapies, he was like, this is prostate cancer. Um, but I have to confirm with a biopsy, will you be okay with the biopsy? We got the biopsy done. I think we were done with the biopsy at 1am that morning. You know, the fact that he stayed late and helped and got that for us, I will forever be thankful, right? Yeah. Two days later, we got the biopsy results and that later that day was when we met you because when we got the biopsy results and the full download of the scans and whatnot, we were basically told that chances of him being ever cancer-free were low double digits. So I'm talking teens, 12% or something low like that of ever being cancer-free. And and it seemed really dire.
0: Do you remember what that biopsy result showed? Uh, um, Do you remember or or the imaging?s Did it show at the time that it was um, outside the capsule?
1: It was extracapsular, so it was already outside the capsule. It was there were there was seminal vesicle involvement. It was abutting his pelvic bone and his and had pushed into his bladder. So it was pretty significant. In fact, the the surgeon whom we met with, who you know initially, every you know what that prepped us for initially was, oh, you know, they'll take it out, you'll be fine. Maybe there's some radiation afterwards, uh, but you'll be good because you're a young guy. Like you know, how hard can it be? And then when the results fully came back, the, it was a completely different discussion. Of nope, surgery is now off the table you know, radiation at best, but don't know if that's really going to work and you're never going to be cancer-free, most likely, because it was, you know, like I said, low teen percentages of being ever cancer-free. And um, it just was a very bleak response, right, at that moment. And that's when we met you.
0: Who found me? And the reason why I'm asking is because, again, (laughs) I see those right the partner the spouse they you know they go they roll up their sleeves right and I would say oftentimes yeah sometimes men actually find but oftentimes there's a spouse who says look we need to know all the options here and they are the ones that found me so I'm curious to know back then and I don't remember did you find me or did Jan do the research and how did that come about
1: no actually kind of neither of us I mean you you've always been a significant part of our cancer journey Right. Because you we met you really you were the first ray of hope we got. And you you always played a positive role in our our cancer journey. Whenever Jan was sort of like things looked really dire and bleak, he was like, I'm gonna go talk to Gio <laughs> and and it would help.
0: Listen, I always say I play the therapist role and I really and I do that with, with love and, and if I don't address the mind body component or any practitioner actually, this is a humanizing scenario. And I would say hope costs nothing. Just this is why I absolutely detest these uh, when physicians sometimes give, uh, you know, X amount of months or years to live to with to anyone. Who, who am I? Who are you to get for a death sentence of any kind and so forth? So uh, I'm glad. Thank you for saying that, because that really, you know, brings me uh, a lot of joy to my heart, because sometimes you just do what you do and you have no idea
1: we were at the hospital and we were just destroyed, honestly, right? We had packed our bags that morning, thinking we might still fly out for Christmas to be with our families. We, you know, had met with the surgeon via phone. So we had physically gone in, but he had already left for the holidays. So he dialed in and this is pre-COVID, right? So you're not used to talking to your doctor over the phone. (laughs) Um, And there wasn't even video. and then we met with the radiologists who had equally dire responses and outcomes and recommendations. And we were just, you could just tell we were destroyed. And the nurse who had shepherded us between the surgeon and the radiologist, I think she took a look at us and she must have pitied us because she's like, Look, there's this person who we have on staff. It's a you know, naturopath, Dr. Gio. Would you want to meet with him? He's got some, you know, non-traditional. Alternatives, he might be helpful, and we were just at that point. Anyone who could remotely have given us any positive news, the answer was yes, because we were just reeling. And so we met with you. I see
0: that was a referral, yeah.
1: And we had already started um, that fall. We had already started exploring certain things like forks over knives and and things like that. Um, for those who don't know, forks over knives is. A platform that focuses on plant-based diets, and I read the China study and.
0: Based on a documentary video that's out on Netflix uh, that was uh, very popular, I, I, anytime somebody probably tells me I'm doing plant-based, I say, "Okay, which documentary did you just watch? Right? Is it Forks Over Knives? Is it uh, a Game Changer? Is the most recent one? Right? Which one did you did you recently watch? Yeah, that's right.
1: Right, but I also read the China study, and that's one of the seminal. Uh, publications about associations between cancer and diets um and plant and animal diet animal-based diets and um and so we had started experimenting a bit with like okay you know just eating more vegetables at that
0: point start there sure
1: (laughs) right because the average american doesn't eat enough vegetables
0: (laughs) that's right Was how how was Jan's diet? How was your Jan's diet and your diet as a couple prior to the diagnosis? Was from a dietary perspective, was there a big change uh, after he was diagnosed?
1: There was right. You gave us. You had recommended. um, You had a, a grid. I remember. You know the the grid of five columns of you know ranging from really great for you to really bad for you to moderate. And he looked at it. You know, and he came from a diet that was, he grew up with a diet that was very focused on bread, potatoes, dairy, you know, whether it's milk, cream, cheese, and meat. Um, that's
0: and the Belgian diet.
1: The Belgian diet, yes. <laughs> and, 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 you know, chocolate for breakfast, right? So right. kind of everything that's, if you look at anti-cancer diets, they'd be like, no, 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 right, no, no, right. no. exactly. Um, and I still remember, he was like, look, you know, we came out from, the conversation with you. And we knew we were gonna affect change, but he looked at it and he was like, I can't eat anything. Those were his words. I can't, there's nothing I can eat. And so it was really an education process of um, showing him how to read nutrition labels and figuring out what it was.
0: Did you have to learn some of this yourself? Was it something that you had to, I've known you for almost 10 years. And to me, it's like, yeah, you're a natural person. You've done, you know, you've even, you cook. So now I I I can't even remember the early days. Were you already into natural plant-based eating at the time or not really?
1: I wasn't. Uh, In fact, um, I'm still plant-based at this point, but prior to all of this, you know, I was a big fan of steaks and, you know, like bring me a stick and lobster dinner any day, all day, right. you know? Yeah. yeah. So it was interesting and it was different. Um, but I've always been fascinated with food and I've always been open to trying new and different foods. So I think that was helpful. And at some point in my life, I had taught myself how to read a nutrition label. Uh, and I forget exactly the genesis of why it was, but I had taught myself how to read the nutrition label to understand what I was putting in my body. Um diet-wise, we we were what the average person would consider healthy in that we, you know, didn't eat an excessive amount of processed foods, but we didn't eat an amount of process like you know, we didn't do very many T V dinners or frozen meals and things like that but we didn't do that because we were basically eating out most of the time, <laughs> which is its own form of unhealthy. Right. Um, and so it was a journey for us to figure out what we could eat. So he had gone, he went basically went gluten free, right. Because we, he realized that he actually was gluten intolerant once yeah. we cleaned up his diet. Right.
0: Um,
1: we went dairy free. We went, uh, and we basically became whole food plant-based and, And it was a process of learning, for me, learning how to cook. I still remember a friend friend coming over and being like, let me show you how. (laughs) Because, and, and that was a big thing, right? So you talk about the importance of the spouse. I think it's also the importance of your village. We basically reached out to friends. And this is one thing that I have to applaud Jan for, right? He decided that he was not going to hide his diagnosis. There's still a lot of people out there who feel that there's a stigma to cancer, and especially something like prostate cancer, which is a very private part of your body, and they don't feel like they want to share it or don't think they can share it. And he did the opposite. He said, "Look, you know, I need I need people to know this because it's going to affect how I behave. It's going to, you know, like you sometimes you're going to have to cancel because a doctor's appointment runs late or." Or whatever might happen, and so he's like, and so he he disclosed fully, and I took a page out of his book based on that. So he modeled behavior as to how he wanted to track this uh, and show himself within this new diagnosis, and I took a page out of that, and I reached out to my own friends and I said, "Look, I need to support him. I need you to support me, right?" And I did something where you talked about vulnerability and whatnot. I knew that I had to be a cheerleader for him. That me bringing my fears to the table while they were valid was not going to be helpful to him, especially in the first days. Um, But I also needed an outlet for my own emotions and my own fears, right? Because I am one of these, everyone's different. Some people journal, some people are great meditating and focusing on their own, whatever. I'm one of these people where I need to just say it out loud and somehow saying it out loud and having, knowing that someone's hearing it helps lighten my load somehow, right? So I reached out and I basically reached out to a cohort of people who, whom I said, you're being tagged because you are people who are part of my inner circle whom I trust. This is what's happened. And I don't know what this means because no one told us. So you talked about the six months of being given a timeline on your disease. It sucks, but it also helps. So no one told us what the timeline was. But then no one. But as a result, I I remember my initial days being like, "Am I gonna have to plan a funeral for my husband in six months?" Because no one, no one told us, and we didn't know, and we didn't know to ask. Right? We didn't realize that. And the reality is, with with stage four prostate cancer, it could be a year. It could be. We had seven, right? Um. But for some, it's it's a year, depending on how stage four you actually are, right? And and your the physicality of your body and the general healthiness of your body going into it and all of that. But I reached out to friends and I said, look, this is what's happening. I need you to be here for me. And oh, by the way, we changed our diets. We're going to be doing this and we need you to be supportive of that. So we had friends who would be like, okay, we're going to go see you for a meal. We're going to find a vegan restaurant because... That's the closest to plant-based as you could find. And this is 2013, where even in New York City, there were not that many vegan restaurants. You had to seek them out.
0: Even in New York City. That's right. Pause there for a 2nd Fenyi, because um, actually you said something really important, I think, for the partners and spouses of men with prostate cancer. You were looking for an outlet. And so this village was part of your outlet. Talk a little bit more about that, because what I see sometimes that that happens is that honestly, oftentimes I see the spouses getting ill themselves from being such a caretaker and ignoring themselves and ignoring their own emotions and their own health. What were your outlets? What were all of your outlets? How did you take care of yourself? Or if you didn't take every time I saw you you look great. You you showed me no signs that you were, but I'm sure there were moments where you were just depleting and things. What were you able to do to take care of yourself? And what was it that you didn't do that? Now, looking back, you say, yeah, I should have done what?
1: So I reached out to friends and we told them about the diagnosis. And I'm very lucky in that I I have a lot of different friends who have different life experiences than I do. And so some came in and said, we'll teach you how to cook. Others were like, hey, have you thought of a support group? I didn't even think I would need a support group at that point, right? But I had been through periods of trauma on my own previous to that, and I knew I needed a therapist because I don't process emotions well. I am a doer. I'm an, I act. I, I respond. I problem solve. I'm really great at all those things. Handling my own emotions Very uncomfortable, very difficult.
0: Great. That's a great point.
1: And so some of it is just sort of knowing yourself.
0: Self-awareness, who you are, how how are you wired? And then based on that, you can figure out more of how you can help, but also how you can uh, take care of yourself. Interesting.
1: And where you need help. Right? Well you need and help. So right? I signed up. I signed up for a therapist. I, I went to a support group that was in person. I learned so much from the people who were in the support group.
0: Was it a a prostate cancer support group or was it for spouses or partners specifically?
1: Um it my initial support group was a caregiver support group.
0: Caregiver support group, great. Mm-hmm. Ca-
1: a cancer caregiver support group. Excellent. And it was done through Gilda, which is now called Rent Door. And they they have been phenomenal um you know they provide everything from information on it's from caregiver and and you know people with cancer support groups through bereavement but also um they talk of you know they have wellness activities whether it's laughing yoga knitting that's great uh so many things that's really about the wellness of the person um and so they've been they were a key part of my of anchoring me through cancer
0: excellent and and the um, name of it we'll have it in our show notes is gilda
1: well it's they changed your name recently so it's now called red door
0: red door excellent great are they national uh, if any, do you know we'll figure it. we'll we'll find that out i
1: think i think they're definitely in the new york tri-state area um, mm. and the whole point of them switching their name to red door was that they did want to expand nationally Excellent. Um, the other one for those who are not in the New York City Tri-State area that does a lot of great work in this space is Cancer Care. Uh, cancer Care provides great support, not just for the person living with cancer, but also their, the rest of their family and friends who are their caregivers and their support.
0: Excellent. So you had these organizations. You also had your own therapist. And then you had friends that said, look, Will help you with the cooking and, and and so it was it was like three groups that really uh, helped you kind of keep yourself again stable and healthy as best as I could see. Um, was there anything along the way that you said? Yeah, I mean there was a time I'm sure there were times where I wasn't taking care of myself and I should have done something. Is there was there a time or the, these groups actually helped you get through the whole journey?
1: These groups were huge. There were other groups that got added along the way. Um and then there's one component that often gets overlooked. So these groups were helpful with the what I'll call mostly the mental and emotional aspects of it. Then there's the physical aspect of it. One thing that Jan and I committed to doing was well he committed to doing <laughs> was to be more physically active because we had been fairly sedentary, right? We
0: were two professionals. <laughs> Thank you. That's actually he committed to do it. <laughs> we are too many people.
1: He no, he committed to doing it, and that's actually something that's very important too, right? Yeah. Um, as a caregiver, it was important for me to realize this and keep it sort of front and center in my mind that this is his journey. It's our journey as well, but I am on this journey to support him and to help him through his journey it is not my journey to lead
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. right and let me just let me just repeat that right it is ultimately his journey right because i there might be times when i might say hey i would rather do this than that but at the end of the day it's because it's his journey he has to have the control he has to establish and make the decisions for himself because he is the one who has to live through the experience and live through the repercussions to whatever whatever we do to his body right
0: mm. i love you saying that i love you and thank you so much what i notice in my practice is that sometimes the partner slash the spouse takes too much control and they make it their journey and one thing that men there is a difference right there, there there is a gender difference, you know, obviously women do do many things and they they can produce and but there is a gender difference. one of the things with men is they like to have control or sometimes even have <laughs> the illusion that they have control, but they'll believe it right they want to be in control of themselves and I find that sometimes the spouse um, sometimes are too much they make every decision and they don't let the uh, they don't let their husband uh partner have the lead the way for their own for themselves um so i thank you for saying that that's actually key
1: i think it's huge because especially if you are and i hate this word but if you're the patient a lot gets done to you in that's the medical right. world right. right that's right you don't really have control over what is done within a clinical hospital setting
0: yeah
1: um what you do have is you have autonomy over your own body and your autonomy to make your own decisions. And as much as we can maintain that, that becomes important because it gives them allows them to maintain a sense of pride, confidence, uh, which all helps with well being and mental health, um and all of that. So Jan decided he was gonna work out, I think, three times a week.
0: Right. And was he a workout person prior? No. Not at no, all. Right? No, neither right. of us were. Right, neither right. of us
1: were. Workouts right. were like if we could find the time. So if we went once or twice a week, never. that was a great week. <laughs> you know, um, you know, yeah. mostly, mostly the gym membership was a way to support the, a business that, <laughs> that wasn't <being> used <laughs> at all. Um,
0: right. It, it was a donation, though. You didn't get the tax benefit from those donations.
1: Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> but one of the things, though, was I realized that that it's easier to do this when you're not doing it alone. Yeah. So when we changed, when he changed, when we decided he was going to change his diet and do the, what we call the geo diet, um, <laughs> but you know the Thrive diet, I changed my diet alongside with him because yeah. I was like, all right, we're going to do this together in solidarity.
0: How important is that, Fenyi, Because I think it's important, but I'm not in it like you guys, right? So how important is it that the partner, spouse, does the plan, the protocol, the lifestyle with the, their partner with prostate cancer? And to what degree? Is it 100% like they, they should do the exercise? Obviously, the supplements are different, but they should do the exercise. They should do them. If they go plant-based, they should, should they do everything? One, what's, what's your take on that?
1: We, we did the diet together and we did the exercise to different levels at different points. Um, and the funny thing is that, as a result, I became healthier for it.
0: Correct. Yeah, <laughs> so
1: right. That's, so that's, right. So the silver lining of prostate cancer was that <laughs> right. I became healthier for right. it. If, there,
0: if there's any silver lining, it's definitely that for sure. That's right.
1: You know, so he decided to start working out. i I started working out, too, at one point, because I was just like, all right, if I model behavior, you know, it might egg him on to do it too, right? And so it became this thing where we both had, diff- we, we didn't work out together, but we each had workout schedules that made sense for us. And just, you know, sometimes knowing that your your loved one's going to the gym And making that a priority, then you don't feel as guilty when you're like, hey, I got to go to the gym. You know, we're not doing this tomorrow because I need to go do this at this time. You know, there's a class I want to take or like I'm a big class person. There's a class I want to take. He would just like squeeze it in and do his own thing. And he had a trainer for a while because that was what we needed, what he needed to jump start working out. Uh, But I think doing it together helps. It also makes sense because we are a very small household. We have no kids. Right. So it's a household of two. Um and really when we changed our diets, it was it was out of simplicity. Cause I was like, We have two people in the house, we're not cooking two separate meals for the two for two people. That makes zero sense. It also made things easier when we were eating out with friends, because instead of like Jan being the one who needed special catering to for food, it was us. And I felt like there was less othering as a result of that and that I think that helped you know I I don't think he was ever embarrassed about it right but but there were once or twice when I remember him feeling like oh you know I don't want to make a big deal I don't want to be that difficult house guest you know and so me being able to say hey this is what works for our diet this is how we are choosing to live our lives now um that kind of Made it a bit easier, right? To for for people whom we were socializing
0: with. Sure, and it was a lifestyle, which I think it's important. Words matter, and it defines who you become, as opposed to a diet temporary for a specific goal. And maybe I won't do it. It became a lifestyle. This is just how we live. This is just what we do. And certainly, it seems like you doing it with him became a lifestyle for you too as a family, uh, as a husband and wife. As you went on through the years, so from time of diagnosis to the time where he passed on, it was seven years. Do you feel that your role changed as the, and some people are going to know this with the intro. I think Jan, I just never met such a strong person in my life. I mean, right till the end, he was strong. He looked great. And even when you guys went to Belgium, I was like, wow, I can't believe you know you going to belgium and he he made it that you had a trip prior to that i think if i remember correctly you went came back and here he was what was um as as the news got a less than optimal let's say and moved on did your role change there did you was it more supportive more caring what was your role as time went on to you know uh towards the end
1: right absolutely so there are so many different aspects to caregiving Right? Yeah. And some people use the word caretaking. There's and you know, either or, I guess. I, I think there's a bit different, a bit of a difference, nuanced difference to the two. But initially it was really about honestly doing research. What are the different treatment options? Where are the best specialists? Who can we go to? Where should we get a second opinion? Should we get a second opinion? What does the science say behind this? You know, we would validate what we were reading or hearing from the doctors because we were, we as a couple sort of needed knowledge and we needed to know and understand and decide for ourselves. Not that we didn't trust our doctors, but we, we kind of needed that extra research to make us feel co- that we could be in control and that we were making educated decisions.
0: Sure, absolutely. But,
1: you know, that's not just with medical stuff, right?
0: Partnered with your doctors, for sure. And uh, you guys always had amazing questions. So you did a lot of that research and you tried to figure out, you were trying to interpret that research yourself and trying to figure out what it really said and trying to figure out what you do with that information and have had better questions you guys always were loaded with great questions, not only with me, but with everyone.
1: We game-planned. We game-planned yeah. before every doctor's appointment. Right. What are the questions we want asked? Okay, now let's prioritize because we're not going to get the doctors for indefinite amounts of time. So what's the big takeaway question we absolutely want answered and we're not going to leave until it gets answered? And that was the point where like, doctors <laughs> might hate me for saying this, but we would be like, all right, this is the one thing we absolutely have to have answered and if we don't. And we're, we're just going to keep asking and coming at it from different angles until we feel like we fully understand what the doctor is saying in response to this one question, whatever that one question might be. And every doctor's visit we went into, we kind of had at least one of those questions where we're like, this is the question we need answered. And if if it takes 10 minutes, if it takes 45 minutes, that's what we're there for to get answered. Um, and that was initially, that was it. And then, of course, helping adapt our lifestyles. And change our lifestyles, right? But once that was done, I mean, honestly, to an extent, it was quote unquote, easy going for a while. And I say that it sounds crazy, but we had some of our best years in the initial years post-diagnosis when, you know, he was stage four, he was being treated, but the cancer was under sufficient control that um, it wasn't, there were no symptoms that affected our lifestyles no no non-manageable symptoms that affected our lifestyles. And so we would do, you know, we would go, we traveled, we traveled the world, right? And that was a big part of, you know, he wanted to live life. And I'm very glad we he did, because we also realized that we were never going to be the couple that was going to retire at 60 and then travel the world or, you know, do whatever this people do when they retire. So we were like, okay, we're going to start doing this in our 40s because that's the life we have ahead of us. So that was us being realistic too, right? Optimistic but realistic. And then obviously towards the end, the last year was the year where really his physical deterioration really, really happened. Because up until um you know even January, March twenty twenty, we were still traveling. You know, he would we would he would help me with household duties, chores. We took turns cooking, or doing laundry, or grocery shopping—all of that, right? Um, but as his physical deterioration accelerated, because the treatments got harsher, and it was harder and harder for him to withstand it. And I mean, he he, he withstood more than most people did, even even as it was. And we do think a large part of it were the protocols we had in conjunction with you know with you that allowed him to withstand all these protocols. Um, but, you know, at some point it got where he wasn't really able to, you know, when we, when we did our trip to Belgium, I carried all the luggage because he had had just, he had just had radiation to, to his to his ribs for bone metastases. And we, and he wasn't really allowed to carry heavy weights. so. And so that's where the physical care, self-care comes in, right? Like at some point I realized that my, my staying physically fit wasn't just about me staying physically fit. It was also like, Hey, at some point I might have to lift him up. I might have to carry heavy things because he can't carry heavy things anymore. I'm going to have to open that jam jar on my own because he may not have the strength. Right. So, it's that aspect of self care as well.
0: So, you're staying in shape because you're sort of saying, I'm going to support him, but you never know what, you know, the other reasons why staying in shape is so important that includes lifting heavy things. These are stressful moments, but throughout those stressful moments, you, because you're sort of trying to, you're eating well with him and you're, you're sort of sustaining your health at a, in a decent way. And that's actually a very important takeaway, I think, for the listener. The role of the of the spouse partner and how important it is for them to actually do the work because do the work with their husband their partner it's supportive helps them not be alone with the process also helps them kind of to sustain their own health and make sure that they're staying well that is great
1: that's something that often gets overlooked yeah. you know in caregiving circles you'd hear about the fact that you can't help anyone until you've helped yourself so The same thing you hear on a plane, right? Put your own oxygen mask on first. And so many women I know, you know, forgo their own health checkups. They skip meals. They they do all of that. And I came about it from a perspective of, you know, I don't want to, you don't want to see me hangry. I don't function well hangry. So I'm going to eat regularly and I'm going to take care of that, right? I need sleep. If I don't sleep sufficiently, I, you know, I can't make good decisions. And if he's in a position where he can't make good decisions either because of the effects of the drugs he's on and so forth, well, then that makes two of us and that doesn't help. Now, of course, what's defined as good sleep or what's defined as eating properly, that changes over time depending on circumstances, right? There are going to be days when you can't have three square meals. There are going to be days when you can't sleep for eight hours. You know, there are going to be days when uh, you don't get your workout in. But recognizing and making sure you do try and prioritize that it is important and it is important to be able to have those open discussions with your, my own doctors knew what I was going through around my husband because his health had an impact on my health, right? So my doctors all knew that I was caregiving for someone with stage four cancer and that his cancer was when it started going sideways, that it was going sideways. You know, we talked openly about whether or not it made sense for me to go on anti-anxiety medication uh, because whether it was going to help me handle my life better at that point in time. Um, and at some point it, it did become a situation where I was like, yeah, actually, you know what? Maybe that makes sense now. Right. right. Because it's going to allow me to focus better and be a better caregiver. Right. But it was also important for me to continue to have my own life. And there are different views. On, <laughs> there are different views on this. Everyone comes to caregiving with a different thing. I can only talk about my journey. Um, My journey was one where I knew, and Jan knew this too at some point, that he was going to pass before I did and that I would have to find a way to live life without him. And so for me, it was also important to continue living my own life. That while caregiving was a huge component of my life, it could not be the end-all,
0: be-all of my life. Excellent. I think that, that that is well said, Fenyi And I think maybe you have one or two other things kind of to close it off. I think this is going to be so helpful. This episode is going to be so helpful to so many people. And I really thank you so much for joining me here. I feel a lot of sense of gratitude for, for you to... I, I didn't know that you were going to say yes to this podcast interview. And I think, because I know that is not uh, the most pleasant thing. Any final thoughts that you have for the audience?
1: I would say that, first of all, I'm very flattered that you included me because I do think that caregivers are special, they are often overlooked um the silent martyrs, so to speak, um, and so my final thoughts would be to not be the silent martyr. one should be able or willing to give as much as you are willing and able to right there is no need or expectation that you should do everything for the person all at once you know that's why and and that goes back to the notion of it takes a village you know we had friends help out we had i we had friends help get him to the hospital and back you know, we had friends who helped us do research. We had people call, we had friends from all over the world who were like, have you spoken to this doctor? Oh, by the way, there's this specialist in my country. And, you know, there's so-and-so, and there's this other treatment that someone's talked about. So we were sort of crowdsourcing everything, uh, you know, call it crowdsourcing, call it leading on your village. The point is you, we are, humans are not solo beings. And therefore this is not a journey that is your sole responsibility as a single caregiver uh, figure out your resources develop those resources um, ask for help ask for guidance and and take it when it's offered you know anytime anyone was like can i help the answer was yes but it might be yes yes here's how or it might be yes i don't know how yet but Yes, and I will keep you on thought in my thoughts for when something's needed, I will tap you, right? So that's that would be my closing thought that you don't have to do everything on your own.
0: Well said, well said. Thank you so much, Fanny. I really appreciate this. And I think that, I don't know, you, you're gonna become famous from this, whether you like it or not as a <laughs> as a caregiver to the caregiver kind of thing of some sort or another. Thank you so much. Um, we'll reconnect soon and thank you. Have a great day. <laughs> I really appreciate it.
1: You're welcome, Gio. All right. I will be in touch. Take care.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Gio podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Gio Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. And now for a brief disclaimer, this podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with.